0: There is nothing better that could speak for us than the blood of Jesus. And it is in line with who Jesus is and what he's done that we want to seek the Lord together. And uh, just an encouragement here on the front end, I know I've said this before, uh, you're more likely to receive a word from the Lord if you want to. You know what I'm saying? So in humility, we come before the word of God, believing that God speaks to us through scripture. So this is an important moment as we read the Bible together in Matthew chapter 6 beginning in verse 9. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, I confess That I am a man who often wants my kingdom to come and my will to be done. That there are times in my life I think I know better and I know how things should really go. And I know how things should really be fixed. There is a wellspring, a reservoir of pride in my heart. And so we come before you asking that you'd give us the grace to be teachable, not just adjustable, but you have the power to transform us. And so much of our lives would be transformed when our praying is transformed, when what we really desire in the deepest parts of our souls are filled up with your goodness and grace. So hallowed be your name, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, of all the things that you could learn to do in life, learning to pray is uh, is the best. And if you were going to have anybody teach you how to pray, there's no one better suited to do that than Jesus. He is our mediator. Uh, Adrian Rogers used to tell a story to illustrate prayer that I've always found helpful. When he was a young man in college, he lived... um, at a widow's house, but the widow had a garage in her backyard, and above the garage was this uh, small apartment, and that's where Adrian Rogers lived. And beside the apartment and beside the garage was a large apple tree, and uh, he would often come home from class to find that the widow, as she uh, worked in her yard, had bagged up a whole lot of apples when when it was the season for that, and would put them at his front door. He would walk in, single guy, and uh, said there were more apples than he knew what to do with. I mean, bags and bags of apples. The apple tree was very fruitful. And one day he was sitting at his desk and looked outside the window, and the little boy who lived next door was sneaking over the fence into the backyard. And on the ground were yes, apples, but they were rotten. Withering. And, and the boy was picking over the apples, trying to find a decent one. And so Adrian Rogers went to the window and started knocking, trying to get the boy's attention because he's got bagfuls of apples, more than he could ever eat on his own, and more than willing to share with the little boy. But the more he knocked, the more nervous the boy got, and he began to look around, thinking that he'd been caught. And so he hurried over the fence. And ran away holding a rotten apple. And the point of the illustration is that God wants to give us good gifts, friends. He does. And He has an abundance. If if we'd stop scrounging around in the fallen world looking for something to satisfy, something to, to satisfy our appetites and look up to the Father in heaven He has an abundance to give us. Hey, you are never, you are never, ever, ever going to want something better for yourself than what God wants for you. And the biggest need you have is is spoken right here. We don't think this is the biggest need we have. That's why we need God's help. The biggest need we have is to hallow the name of the Lord. There is no abundant life apart from hallowing His name. That's the beginning of an abundant life. So if you could ask God for one thing, if you could ask God for one thing, what would it be? And again, the, the, the prayer that Jesus models for us directs us that our biggest need is one that we wouldn't say. We, we would come up with something else other than hallowing God's name. But God says if you want to really live... You live, for, you live a life that honors His name and not your own. So, uh, let's remember together, where we left off last week, it will never be a question of if your life hallows something, honors something, builds on something, looks primarily to something. It's not a matter of if you'll do that, but what you will hallow. Kevin DeYoung, one of my favorite authors, says, we are all natural evangelists for whatever it is that we love most. And that's true. Whatever you love most is, is what you proclaim. So if you've got an outline you want to follow along in, uh, in the message, we'll, we'll start with the observation that there is no better indicator of our spiritual health than our prayer life. No better indicator of our spiritual health than our prayer life. You know, if we were gonna talk about your physical health this morning, there's a few things that we would immediately look to. I mean, this was the past week, was my annual checkup, went to the doctor, and there's certain things they always do. Why? Because there's certain things that indicate your physical health. Well, when it comes to your spiritual health, there's no better indicator of your spiritual health than, than your prayer life. So just ask, how was your prayer life this past week? Remember, not in the legalistic sense of praying in front of other people in order to be seen by them. And also, not, not only do you not pray to impress others, you don't really pray to impress God. He's God. So can we just say for a moment, He's not really all that impressed with us. You don't have to impress Him. That's what He teaches in Matthew 6, verses 7 through 9. Now, we want to move this morning to talking about verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we study the Bible, we're here in Matthew chapter six, and it's helpful to know that there have been five chapters of this book that have come already. So so when Jesus says something, we always want to tie it to the context. So if you'll turn with me back a couple of chapters to Matthew chapter four, let's see something together uh, that maybe clarifies this prayer request. Matthew chapter 4 is the temptation of Jesus. You ready for some good news? He was tempted in every way we are, but without sin. Praise the Lord. You can only pay for somebody else's sin debt if you yourself are sinless. A bankrupt person can't pay off somebody's financial debt. Amen? And so he withstands every temptation. But I want you to pay attention to one in particular. Matthew chapter 4, beginning... In verse 8, again, the devil took him, that's Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if... Always got to pay attention to the price tag, right? If you will fall down and worship me, hey, there are kingdoms of the world. There are just a couple of observations from this from this passage. They are spiritual in nature. That means they appeal to you. Apart from the grace of God, the kingdoms of the world is what we'll desire. You'll think the good life is if I can just have this or build this kingdom, right? And they have a measure of glory. That's what makes them desirable. I mean, when we see, you know, if you're a sports fan, you see this all the time. Saw the team running off after the big upset yesterday, right? What was that about? It's about glory. We did it. Look at us. And those are worship services. You know that, right? Thousands of people turn out, sing the song. Vested interest, cheer, root, it's about glory. The, there are kingdoms in the world. They're spiritual in nature. They have a measure of glory. They're objects of worship. So, so we don't want to detach worship from only having a religious connotation. Everybody's a worshiper. Everybody is. You want to know what your worship is? As we've often said, you just do three things what gets your attention, what gets your affection, what gets your allegiance. Whatever's on top of those lists, that's what you worship. That's what you give you to. And let's hear what Jesus says. Verse 10 Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. Did you love that? Get out of here. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So, whatever you worship, friends, that's what you serve. They'll always go together. So what have you served this week? What kingdom have you served this week? For the most part, left to ourselves, we, we, we build the kingdom of self, and that's what you spend time serving, and that makes you, quite frankly, pretty miserable. So, so let's, let's think about it this way this morning. If you were given the power to fix the world, what would you do? Where would you start? If you were put in charge... What would be your plan to fix things? Now, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you think you'd be pretty good at that? You just put me in charge. I'll handle it. I can fix everything around here, right? We, now, we all agree that things need fixing, right? Or as we like to say, fixing. No, that's about to do something. That, right, that's, I, I use that word wrong. Where would you start? Now, we all agree things are broken. The Bible teaches us what's broken is happened at the fall when, when human beings who were created by God sought to replace God as God. But let's, let's think about this. What, how, how would you fix it? So next on your sermon outline is this point. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, there were four primary groups competing for allegiance among the crowds. So again, if we're just going through the trajectory of the, Matthew's gospel, Jesus is tempted. He, he uh, withstands every temptation. Uh, And then he begins to call the disciples. He tells them to repent and follow me. Remember last week? we got to get those two things in order. You can't follow him without repenting, meaning you turn around, you trust Jesus, and then you start to follow him. And now, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So when we get to the Sermon on the Mount, you see there's crowds. Disciples are distinct from the crowds. Did you see that? That they kind of left the crowds behind and they went to Jesus, and Jesus is teaching them. The Sermon on the Mount is addressed to those who've left the crowds in order to submit to his lordship. Now, let's say a couple things about the crowds. Did you notice, by the way, it's not a coincidence that Jesus also went up on a mountain? Remember, the devil took him on a mountain, and now Jesus is sitting on a mountain. Just to show you that this is about authority. Who do you trust? What do you believe? What kingdom are you a part of? So if you had a time machine and you went back to this time and place and were observing the crowds that were there, there were four primary groups who wanted the crowds to have allegiance for them. The first is the Pharisees. You've probably heard of them. Part of, if we can say it, the tension of the Sermon on the Mount is this right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, right? And so the crowds have turned out to see who this new force on the scene is aligned with. What banner will he wave? What message will he proclaim? Which of the uh, groups that they're familiar with will he sort of be a champion for, right? That's what's going on here. And uh, we'll see whose side Jesus is on. Momentum's building. He starts speaking. Who does he support? Well, the Pharisees. If you gave them the power to fix things, their slogan would be we need to go back. We need to go back to the way things used to be. The Pharisees, a couple things that are helpful to know about them they know Scripture well. Quote Scripture, know their fighter verses. They don't have fighter verses, they have fighter books the book of psalms memorized large portions of the law memorized at a time and place when the average person can't read they're dependent on uh, the educated person to tell them what god's law says that's who the pharisees were for the most part they were the teachers in the synagogues but but the pharisees had become a group of moralists who made rigid demands of people while lacking any measure of compassion and grace the the pharisees can quote scripture but the fastest thing they do is point out the shortcomings of others while offering them very little help. They wanted the Jewish people to go back to the way things used to be. They tended to glamorize the past and exaggerate their own righteousness. And friends, you're never, you're never more in danger of being a Pharisee than when you maximize the sinfulness of others. And minimize your own shortcomings or justify your sin. Hey, they weaponize the law of God. The, God's law is, is an awesome blessing. But the primary purpose of God's law is to reveal to me that I need some serious help. The law's primary purpose is to reveal to me I need fixing. We used the illustration before, but uh, suppose uh, we drove to the beach. Anybody want to go to the beach today? Huh? We get on the bus, go to the beach, we get onto the shore, and I say, All right, y'all, we're going to swim to Spain. What would you say? You would say, That's what? Go on and say it. That's crazy. Okay. (laughs) That's impossible. Do you know what the Pharisees said? Freestyle. Backstroke, butterfly, which one? And then they would start swimming, and they say, look at me. Look how far. Now, it's true. Somebody can go furthest, but it's just a matter of time until it's demonstrated that it's impossible. That's what the law is. You shall have no other gods before him. Boom, we're done. We're done. Because I worship me. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Keep the Sabbath. I mean, the law reveals that I'm out of sync with God. But, man, there's something in us. I <laughs> think about the other day. I mean, we, we, oldest child is a high school senior, so we're right in the midst of applying for college. And when you apply for college, you write the essays, and you're just trying to build your resume, right? Here's what I am. Here's why you should let me in to your school, and here's how great I am, right? That's kind of how the system goes. First words out of the mouth of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. That means those applying for the kingdom of God, you get your application and you know what you say? I got nothing. And you know what God says? Come on in. The Pharisee said, I was awarded Psalmist Memorizer of the Year in 82. For. I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, look how great I am. Well blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. And you know this, most likely, who is it in the Gospels that in his interactions Jesus has the most consistent conflicts with? It's the Pharisees. And they said, we need to go back. They become his harshest critics and his most vocal opponents. They want to go back at a time when Jesus says, I am here right now. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, the Pharisees were one of the four groups competing for allegiance. The second is the Sadducees, and they, they, were, they were rivals of the Pharisees. They did not say, we need to go back. They said, we need to go forward. Now, the Sadducees held to some of the scriptures, right? They'd get what we'd call the Old Testament out, and they'd kind of go through there and say, we would like some of this, and maybe even we like most of this, but some of this stuff, particularly when it comes to the resurrection, uh, we need to leave some of this behind. That They want to take some of the old ways of doing things and in that time and place, you got the Greek influence, the Greek language. you got the Romans who were in charge. They, they kind of wanted to take a little bit of the past and a little bit of the new and sort of merge them together, that we need to make progress. We need to go forward. The Sadducees, they tended to be better educated, to occupy prominent places in the government, and to look down on the backward Pharisees and say that the way to really fix things is to move forward. People need to be less tied to the old ways and more open to the new ideas. Some of those old ways, they would say they're stuffy. They're too restrictive. They're holding us back from progress. Those belong to a previous generation, not the exciting right now. And so some of them are standing there saying, this guy, man, he's not from the most glamorous place. I mean, Nazareth, that's not really a happening place. But people have said, he's a powerful teacher. Let's listen to what he has to say. And he says, Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. And you can just about hear the Sadducees say, Maybe he's not lining up with us. Well, the next group is the group called the Essenes. You don't hear a whole lot about them in the Gospels because they weren't ever around, right? They say, the way to fix things, actually, they can't be fixed. We're going to go away. They were the original off-the-gridders, right? They're going to live off the grid. Their conclusion was the whole society is corrupt, and there's no way to fix it. They look around whether it's the Roman government, the religious leaders, be they the Pharisees or the Sadducees, and said the whole thing's corrupt. They don't trust anybody to change, so they withdrew. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. You know, like 1947, little boy's out working for his family and tosses a rock in a cave. Something cracks in there that sounds interesting, so he goes in and makes the great archaeological discoveries of uh, the 20th century, all these clay pots full of Scripture. You know who wrote them? The Essenes did. Why did he find them in a cave? Because they'd gone to live where nobody lives, right? We're done. Some of you might say, hey, sign me up. i just going to go live out in a cabin in the middle of nowhere, and I'm going to be done with everybody and everything, right? I'm not sure if any Essenes actually showed up to hear. They might have dropped off. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and place it under a bulb, but on a stand, so it gives light to everyone who is in the house. What does that say? And you can't drop out. You can't withdraw. You can't throw in the white flag and say there's no fixing this, right? And, And then one more group. It's the zealots. The zealots say, well, we're not going to go back, we're not going to go forward, we're not going to go away, we're going to go against. The zealots were a, were a group who wanted to take down the Roman government and its position of power and influence. It's an important day in our lives, right? September the 11th. If you're old enough, you remember where you were 21 years ago. It's just, it's a, man a day we'll never forget. For us here in America, the day that there was an attack on our soil, for us it's never happened. Well, for the zealots living in Judah, they would never had a day where they were in charge of their own soil. It's always somebody else. And you go through the Old Testament history, it's either Egypt, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, the the Romans, the the Greeks, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. It's always somebody else. So we're going to take matters into our own hands. They had never known a time when someone else didn't rule over their land, except for a little brief period under the Maccabees when they had self-rule. But that had by this time been generations ago. Now, they don't have enough strength to overcome the Roman armies with their legions and technology, so they resorted to assassination, more covert operations. Uh, they want to tear the whole thing down. The way to fix things around here is to strike down our enemy. And if your concept of a Messiah is It's kind of in line with someone like Alexander the Great, who had lived in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament's conclusion and the New Testament's beginning. If that's your idea of of a great ruler, and then somebody comes along and starts doing some things like, do you remember we, we, we read in the Gospel of John not long ago, you know, the number one issue for a large standing army in that time and place was? Well, it's one thing to raise up a whole lot of people, but then how are you going to feed them? What's Jesus demonstrate on, a, on one occasion? Give me a few loaves and a few fish, and we'll keep them fed. That's why, by the way, in John 6, it says, when that happened, they sought to make him king by force. Or, you know, if you know military strategy and you're kind of into that thing, you can be, the, you can be a military strategic genius, plot everything out the way that it should go, and the day of battle comes, and there's a terrible storm. Can't control the weather, but what has Jesus demonstrated? And speak, and it'll be calm. You hurt somebody; somebody get a sword. What does Jesus demonstrate? I can heal him. Or even if the soldiers get struck down, what does Jesus demonstrate? Raise him up again. He can push the Romans out. Now we're in Matthew six, and if you'll follow the trajectory over the course of the gospel, what happens is, over and over, Jesus says, I'm not with them. I'm not with them. I'm not with them. And I'm not with them. And what ends up happening is all of these people who were competing with one another actually begin to collaborate with one another. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, who wouldn't even sit down at the table, they conspire together with who? The Roman government. And what they all agreed was, we might not see eye to eye on much, but we know that man has got to go. Why? Because he didn't come to build a kingdom of the world. It's a different kingdom altogether. And by the way, didn't read this verse, but just so we're clear on it, how do you think this sounds to a zealot? You've heard, Matthew five thirty eight. it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if he would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, the names have changed. Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and zealots, but most of us can look at those four groups and look around the world and say, those four impulses continue to run pretty strong in the world, don't they? They continue to be offered as the means of fixing things. But this is important. Jesus does not align himself with any of them. In one single sermon, Jesus makes it clear He's not aligning with any of the four primary groups as they shout, go back or go forward, go away or go against. Jesus says, come to me. And we need God's word to help us with this because one of the easiest things to do in the world is to do what they tried to do then and get him to adopt my agenda. Well, he really speaks for me. Now, uh, that's why the commandment says, Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. We don't go around saying things, signing Jesus' name to him, when it's not really what he said, or if it is what he said, it's taken out of context and twisted to match my agenda. That's what this prayer is about. That's why it's important, because it goes down to the deepest parts of us, because we're all natural self-kingdom builders. On your outline, they, speaking of the four groups, all sought to build kingdoms that are worldly, temporary, and see others as enemies more than as neighbors. You see that? In in, in those four ways of fixing things, another group of people has to be destroyed. For the Pharisees to get their way, the Sadducees got to go. For the the zealots to get their way, the Pharisees got to go. And it just becomes, well, chaos. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Last point we'll talk about that Jesus is the king of a better kingdom. Do you believe that? Jesus is the king of a better kingdom. While they're building worldly temporary kingdoms, and we see this all through history, the Romans were the mightiest kingdom in the world at the time, not so much now. That's a good word for us. Whatever the mightiest kingdom in the world is right now, if the Lord tarries, it won't be Centuries from now. Now, we've been in Matthew 4 together. Let's turn back again. I want to read this passage again, and I I want you to see if you can see the price that's required by the kingdoms of the world. I want you to see if you can see the price that's required. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So all the kingdoms of the world come at a price... Remember, Jesus will say elsewhere, what's it profit to gain the whole world and forfeit what? Your soul. But what's the price? The price is you. The price is you. So here's the distinction. The kingdoms of the world come at the price of you. The kingdom of God, you're welcomed in through Jesus who pays the price for you. Friends, that's a better kingdom. It's such a better kingdom. Now we're all of us, all of us, prone to pursue a different kingdom than the kingdom of God. That's why we pray. That's the point, right? That's why we pray, because there's something that's not that's. Um, will this make sense to you? That's fixed and being fixed in here. You know what I'm saying? It's fixed. I belong to Jesus, but there's still work going on in here because I something in here s- still wants my own kingdom. And the fight's real, y'all. Fight is real. You've you've likely experienced it this week. It's the fight. The real fight is to try not to have God adopt my agenda, but rather for me to come in line with His. So let's keep reading. Verse 10, be gone, Satan. Verse 11, then the devil left him. Praise God for that, right? The the devil might leave you a little bit more if you told him to, by the way, in Jesus' name. Just get out of here. What's he after? He's after your allegiance. He's after your attention. He's after your affection. He's after you to steal, kill, and destroy. And he'll do that all the while while you think you're building something great, but it's a kingdom built on sand. Well, let's keep reading now, when he heard, verse 12, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. We're going to learn how the kingdom of God comes, by the way. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them light has dawned from that time jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand well in conclusion maybe we understand repentance this way repentance is when you renounce allegiance to a fading kingdom bow the knee to king jesus trust him and seek now to worship and serve him only have you done that Because, friends, that is not the same as saying, here's how I think things should be fixed, and now I'm going to co-sign Jesus' name to it. The only way for things to be fixed is for you to be fixed. And the only way for you to be fixed is for the author of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, to go to the cross, pay your debt, the Holy Spirit now come to reside in you and begin the work of fixing you. First thing that's fixed is I no longer hallow my name, I hallow his name. And the result of that is I'm no longer building my kingdom, I'm seeking to build his kingdom. I want to conclude on some good news. That kingdom's going to last. It is. The old question for theologians is, is the kingdom of God now or in the future? Already or not yet? Yet. And most of the theologians I trust, and I think the Scripture more importantly would back this up, is the answer is yes. Yeah, the kingdom of God. He said it. It's at hand. Jesus has invaded the kingdoms of the world. He tried to. The devil tried to buy him off. I'll give him to you if you just bow down and worship me. I said no. I'm going to the old rugged cross, and I am going to buy back my people. I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to pray together have a time of response, and then I just want to say on the front end, if you just prepared after we respond, I do have a few things for our church family that I want to share about that are coming up, so just, just know that. And, but right here in this moment, with your head bowed with me, uh, as we study and think about the scripture, we always want to give God room to do some fixing in our lives, So, response number one, I am not asking you if you've come to church a lot in your life. I'm not asking you if you've got a lot of verses memorized. I'm asking you if you've ever bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, the King. He is the only King you will serve who does you well the only one. You can't even serve yourself and do well. He's the only one. His kingdom is going to last forever and ever. If you ever repented to follow him and enter his kingdom, you know what you bring with you? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. All we bring into the kingdom is the need to be saved. He brings the saving. Man, if you've never entered the kingdom of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it'll be my joy. I'm going to plant my feet here at the front as we sing. I'd love to speak to you, pray with you. Maybe set up a time we could talk more in the future. it be my joy to do that. And then, second, if you belong in the kingdom of God, hey, are there some kingdoms of the world that are calling to you? Would you ask God to give you help to remember the price that's required? You never take a step towards the kingdoms of the world without forfeiting something that's good and better. So, Father, we pray right now in Jesus' name that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction, bring correction, bring encouragement, exhortation, help. A big part of praying is not us telling you what you should do, but you shaping, molding, correcting, transforming, fixing us into who we should be. We want to be a a prayerful people. So use this time now for uh, our good, for your glory. In Jesus' name.
1: souls to him belong. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to Our faith when fears arise, who stands above the storm.